This is Lizzie Oziel, Vision Movement, and you're listening to the Next Stage podcast. We're in the middle of Hanukkah, and I'm here in Beit El with Rabbi Huda Cohen. Hanukkah Sameach. How's your Hanukkah going? Uh, my Hanukkah is actually going great. How's your Hanukkah going? My Hanukkah is going amazing. I am getting a lot of chizuk from walking around Jerusalem and seeing constant reminders of our miraculous victory against the Greeks everywhere. You know, it's it's fun. You're on a bus and you just catch a glimpse of a random car with a Hanukkah lit up with the Monte candles for the nights. And it's really inspiring. Yeah, I think about a year ago we did a show together on Hanukkah where we discussed the difference between experiencing it here in our natural habitat versus in places like Toronto or New York. Yeah, I mean, there's a significant difference. When I see the Hanukkah candles here, I'm reminded that this miracle actually took place on the ground that I'm standing on. And there's this like link that you can feel between the Jewish past and the Jewish present. And there's something really, really special about that that you just can't quite grasp the depth of when you're when you're not in the land. Yeah, you don't have to tell me. I spent many years living in the Maccabee partisan camp where much of the story actually unfolded. Uh, so I definitely feel a special connection to the Maccabeem. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but many, many years ago, um, I think I was about 20. It was before, right before I was really radicalized, but I was certainly on my way. I was in Miami, and according to the Christians, it was December 25th, or maybe 24th, actually. And the Jews over there do something called the matzah ball, okay? I'm, I'm familiar with the matzah ball. It's the nightclub, right? Yeah, it was like a party at a club, okay? okay? Yeah. And I went, and, you know, I, I wasn't a stranger to nightlife. You know, I, I grew, I was coming from, basically at the time I was coming from outside the Jewish community, and I was on my way in. And I wanted to check this out. I wanted to see what the Jews are doing and, kind of connect to my people. And one of the things I remember thinking as I'm sitting there alone, feeling really turned off by everything going on around me, it just dawned on me. You're going to think I'm crazy. But it just kind of like hit me that I'm the uh, reincarnation of Yudha Maccabi. Like it hit me. I'm like 20 years old in the club, and that's what hits me. And it sounds like a crazy thing, right, that I'm the Gilgul of Yudha Maccabi. But the truth is, I am, and so are you, because we all share a giant soul, you know, like we're all really in some way, we're all kind of the reincarnation of all of the biblical heroes, because all of Israel shares one giant soul that shines into this world through all the Jewish people throughout history. So that, that was actually true, just not in the way that I was thinking that night, and, and I don't remember what substances I had taken, or if any, maybe none, maybe I just had a drink, I don't know. But I remember that feeling of being really turned off by whatever that culture was, this kind of like Jewish culture that was like trying to do the like American nightlife thing, but a Jewish way, and it was, it was just like a big turn, like coming from the broader New York Gentile world, it was really a turnoff. Like I was looking for something a little bit more like unique and proud and like ethnocentric maybe. I don't know. I, I was looking for something that would have been a little more like, yeah, you know. I, I mean, I kind of found it with JDL, but uh, this was actually before I had uh, quote unquote drafted into JDL. Just 
small anecdote, something that just came to mind. So I figured I'd share. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult during Hanukkah to see Jews acting like Hellenized Jews, um, just the version of that in our day and age. Um, and especially appropriating the message of Hanukkah to take some very wrong political stance on the war that's going on in, on in Israel. Um. Are you the judge on what stances are right and wrong in terms of Hanukkah in this war? I think Hanukkah itself is the judge, meaning if you're, you're either, you know, behind Israel in terms of fighting our wars that we got to fight in our land or you're not behind Israel. And it's it's hard to take somebody seriously when they're using it's whatever you want to take, whatever stance you're going to take. That's fine. But don't appropriate Hanukkah, which is like the Jewish holiday about our war against foreign influence or just people who were at war against in our lands, you know, don't take that message and try to try to pervert it into something it's not during a time of war. Can I try? You can try. Something that might kind of stand out is the role played by the Maccabeem, you know, where how they were positioned in relation to colonialism during that struggle might in many ways remind people of Hamas's position right now, uh, like the Maccabim, you know, Hamas appears to combine what we would call religious fundamentalism with an anti-colonial guerrilla struggle, uh, fighting oppression and imperialism. And uh, some might argue that, certainly Hamas would argue, that that is what they're fighting against. They're resisting Zionist colonization. And uh, some might look at this struggle, at least on the surface, and say, hey, Hamas are the Maccabim, and the Zionists today are the Greeks. I would say that instead of taking that, if you're a Jew, instead of taking that stance, take the stance that maybe Israel should reevaluate the tools that we're using to fight some of our wars. That's a fair stance. But definitely to discourage us from fighting a war, that it's a necessary war. You know, we had like a, suffered a grave attack um, and we got to respond to it. Whether or not we seem to be operating with settler colonial structures or not, we experience ourselves as an indigenous people still. And so communicate that to the people of Israel more so than the message that we should not be fighting a war because that's antithetical to Hanukkah. Right. Maybe a good way of understanding it is once the Maccabim had achieved victory, if some weaker force in the land had attacked them in the way Hamas attacked us on Simchat Torah, they would probably respond with maximum violence despite the power dynamics and despite the fact that they're no longer fighting the Greeks, they're now fighting some, you know, other native group that attacked them for whatever reason. Uh, this actually reminds me of the leaflets, the Arabic leaflets that the Lehi, the Lochamech uh, Israel, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, uh, distributed throughout the country in Arabic, calling on the Arabic-speaking population of Palestine not to fall into the British trap of attacking the Jews. The Lehi basically said, you know, for years we fought the British. You know us. You know who we are. You know what we can do. We don't have a problem with you. We would actually like to build a society together with you and live here in peace with you. But if you attack us, we're going to do to you what we did to the British. And uh, that's pretty much what happened. Right. They did attack us. And the Lehi, not only the Lehi, I mean, I would say that of all the different underground groups or semi-legal militias that the Jews had in Palestine before 1948, Lehi was the one that was probably least prepared for an Arab front. The Haganah, the Palmach, for years 
had been preparing for an Arab front. They and, and they had barely fought the British at all. In fact, one could argue they collaborated with British imperialism much more than they fought against it. The Etzel, the Irgun Svailomi, uh, under the command of Menachem Begin, they had fought the British as well, but they had also been preparing for a war against the Arabs, not just Palestinians, but also the surrounding Arab states. It was really only Lehi that, to a certain extent, had lived, maybe we could say, in the illusion that Jewish-Arab peace and Jewish-Arab partnership was so obvious and such a given that once the British were gone, we would just kind of build this land and this region together. And I think it was Lehi more than all the other groups that were caught off guard. You know, their ideological position and their analysis was really, their analysis was really, at that time, their analysis was really full of reasons why there would not be an Arab front. Although they did distribute those leaflets, they did warn the Palestinians not to mess around. And uh, once that violence actually did take place, the Lehi responded with maximum force. And in the context of the Nakba, there are definitely places that were destroyed, not by the Palmach or the Haganah, but by Lehi. But they were really caught off guard. They really didn't believe there would be an Arab front, and they hoped to avoid it. But I think they did the responsible thing under those circumstances. They basically warned the Arab population. They told them in their own language, we don't want beef with you, but if you bring it, you're going to feel it. Sure. Listen, I think that the overall message of Hanukkah should be, and and it happens to be that the Hanukkah story takes place within the context of us fighting a colonizer. But I think whether we're fighting a colonizer or another indigenous people, we have a responsibility to respond in a certain way and respond strongly and as Jews. And this applies whether or not we're behaving like colonizers or like indigenous people. Um, And so to appropriate the message of Hanukkah, to try to twist it into something that it's not, which, and I get the arguments, I just think that it misses the broader story. You're specifically referring to like Hanukkah ceasefire type stuff, right? Yes, I'm specifically referring to Hanukkah ceasefire stuff or Hanukkah anti-Zionist stuff. You know, um, I don't think that this is a new phenomenon. I've seen Jews use Hanukkah in a context where they're trying to, you know, justify their opposition to the state of Israel. And I really do find that to be a perversion of the message of Hanukkah. Because at the end of the day, you know, the underlying theme of Hanukkah is how deep our connection really is to both our identity and to the land of Israel. And you can't misappropriate that for other causes, um, no matter what kind of discourse you want to bring into the picture. So if I understand you correctly, the real message of Hanukkah is strong Jews fight, regardless of whether we're punching up, punching down, punching across, we're just going to punch. Nachon. Yes, that is that is the message of Hanukkah, essentially. Um, speaking of the war that we're in, I wanted to briefly touch on this discourse that's been happening now about the day after, about what Israel's moves are going to look like in terms of Gaza the day after this war is finished. Yeah, that is the conversation right now. That's a conversation everywhere. What is the day after this war going to look like? But I think it's important when we talk about the day after to maybe separate between immediately after the war and long-term, what direction we expect to move in. Sure. You know, what's difficult about that is that I think there's uh, the Israeli 
picture of how things are going to look going forward. And then there is America's bottom line, which they're hoping to get a clear picture of what are these new dynamics going to look like? What's Israel going to do with Gaza? And how is this going to change our relationship with the United States? How's this going to affect their interests? So there's that day after question. And then there's the internal Israeli day after question of, okay, what does our reality look like now going forward? You know, what's the situation going to be in the land in Gaza. Right. And just to be clear, this whole conversation surrounding the day after has really been prompted by the United States, by the Biden administration, demanding to know or demanding for Israel to state, maybe for others to hear, what the day after is meant to look like. Where is this going? I think the United States specifically is nervous that Israel either plans or might just kind of find itself in a situation where we are back in Gaza, we are 100% responsible for security, uh, our soldiers are in Gaza, without any exit on the horizon. I think that's America's nightmare scenario, that Gaza somehow becomes part of Israel once again. And I don't think any of Bibi's responses up until now have done anything to allay those fears that America has. BB stated numerous times already that there are three goals for the day after um, that Hamas is destroyed, that Gaza is demilitarized and that Gaza's population is de-radicalized. And he's also stated pretty openly that he does not trust an international authority or the PA to actually take over those duties. And so the options that that leaves left is essentially Israel either taking that responsibility onto themselves or creating some other force within Palestinian society that's going to take on that responsibility, which seems more and more unlikely given the criticism that he's been laying on the Palestinian Authority about how awful they are and how they essentially have the same goal as Hamas. They just want to do it in different stages than Hamas actually wants to do it. Right. So let's actually explore the potential scenarios for the day after. There's the scenario that we already said the United States is afraid of, uh, which is probably the one I would support the most, I expect it to be the one you would support the most as well, and that's Gaza is ruled by Israel, Israel's in complete control, and Israel will ideally rebuild the Jewish communities that were destroyed in Gaza, and Bizrat Hashem eventually you know, apply full Israeli sovereignty to Gaza so that it's just part of our state, no different from Ashdod or Ashkelon. That would be America's nightmare scenario. And I think there are a lot of people in Israeli society who are not looking for that either. Well, maybe not. I don't know. That's one scenario, right? Where, Where Gaza becomes part of Israel. A second scenario is that the PA comes in, which I don't think is likely, not only because Netanyahu has expressed clear opposition to that, but also because I don't see how the PA can ride into Gaza on the back of an Israeli tank and have any credibility whatsoever, you know, in terms of the Gazan population. I just think that's a recipe for disaster. I think the PA knows it's a recipe for disaster. Uh, I don't think they're eager to do it. And I don't think they're in any shape to do it right now. It would require like a whole effort to strengthen and, and re-legitimize the PA, uh, probably flush them with cash, you know, more American trained security forces. It, w- it would be a whole mess that we don't want. So that's option two, let's say. Option three would be some kind of international force. I don't think like Western nations are interested 
in sending their soldiers to occupy Gaza. But there is hope expressed by some people in liberal Zionist spaces that some of the signatories to the Abraham Accords will send their forces with the hopes that they're invested in countering the strength of Iran in the region, including their proxies, which of course includes Hamas, and that unlike an international force um, comprising of like, I don't know, Belgian and French and British soldiers, soldiers from Sunni nations that have normalization agreements with Israel who themselves feel threatened by Iran and its proxies might actually be invested in shutting down Hamas and helping a post-Hamas Gaza to flourish and succeed. And, and then there's a fourth scenario where Israel just unilaterally withdraws, like in 2005, and, you know, whatever happens, happens. I mean, assuming, assuming we've already removed Hamas from power and eliminated the possibility of them returning to power, uh, I think the expectation in that scenario would really be that the power vacuum would be filled by either something like Hamas or worse. I think out of all of those four options, there's maybe two that are even somewhat viable, and that's maybe option one and three, which is that Israel either annexes or that, you know, those Abraham Accords dictatories would take power. But I really don't find um, that a viable option. I don't know why they would want to come in here and get their hands dirty and potentially risk even more, you know, looking like collaborators with Israel now seeming like they have a direct hand in Palestinian oppression and squashing their liberation movements. That just seems like a project they wouldn't really want to get involved in. Better let Israel just get our hands dirty and they don't have to look bad in the process because that would basically involve them taking our role as their occupier. And I don't see that as being a realistic option. In terms of the PA, I think, honestly, their survival within the West Bank is already starting to be questionable um, with the economic situation going on right now and Israel's repeated incursions into Palestinian cities. It's almost looking like we could potentially be gearing up for a military campaign against them too, let alone actually considering handing over Gaza to them. And, and that would be assuming that they have the civil infrastructure to be able to do that. They've been having internal crisis for a while. Um, Abu Mazen's old. The succession of his position has been a hot topic of debate in Palestinian society. And so the likelihood of that being a viable option to actually have them take over leadership of Gaza is very low. And really practically, it makes a lot of sense for Israel to annex right now. And it makes very little sense for us to pursue any other option. Well, as much as I would love for Israel to annex Gaza, I don't see annexation being in the cards anytime soon. I think what's more likely is for Israel just to stay in Gaza because there's no other option, that we have no choice but to remain, to take responsibility for security. And that situation could just like go on for a number of years as Israeli society changes, as it becomes more and more normal for Israelis to say, hey, yeah, Gaza's part of our country too. We should, you know, we should rebuild the Jewish communities that were destroyed. If we're there anyway, we might as well. Um, maybe we should annex it. I think Israeli society's sociocultural trajectory is such that that may be more likely five, ten years from now than it is right now. Uh, as long as we're able to hold Gaza militarily during that time, I, I think that's a likely scenario, you know, a decade from now or maybe a little less. And also uh, another important factor here is the 
shrinking power of the American empire. I think as the United States becomes less and less powerful, the main obstacle to Israel rebuilding the Jewish communities in Gaza uh, that were really destroyed as a result of American demands in 2005. It was George W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice who really forced Israel to surrender Gaza and to destroy all the Jewish communities that existed there. Uh, our Prime Minister at the time, Ariel Sharon, who of course is not blameless in this, but it is important to note that he said on several occasions, we're not making peace with the Arabs, we're making peace with the Americans. We have to do this. I, and I think a lot of Israelis and even pro-Israel diaspora Jews aren't aware of the extent to which the Gaza disengagement of 2005 was an American policy, was something that the United States forced upon us. I think that the narrative even a lot of you know Jewish nationalists have is that you know it was Sharon uh, acting unilaterally in order to avoid an indictment, and and that might also be true, but it's all it's certainly true that the Americans had demanded he surrender the entire Gaza region and destroy all the Jewish communities that existed there. And Bush even demanded that Sharon throw in four Jewish communities from the northern West Bank, uh, from uh, the northern Shamron, in order to show that we're not stopping in Gaza. And at least according to Major General Gershon Cohen, who was the commander of the Gaza disengagement, at least according to him, Sharon was planning to repeat the policy in the West Bank uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, we know that Sharon was struck with a stroke uh, before he could continue with his plans. But uh, Gershona Cohen has said on several occasions, and we even have a recording in English at our Patreon. If any of our patrons want to hear it, you can go to patreon.com slash vision movement and hear what uh, Major General Gershona Cohen has to say about the disengagement and the lessons learned from that experience. Uh, but I guess we could say we're fortunate that uh, Sharon wasn't able to act on those plans. But anyways, as much as I would like to see Gaza and, of course, the West Bank annexed to the state of Israel for full Israeli sovereignty and Israeli law to be applied to these territories and for the Palestinians who live in these territories to become citizens in a democratic society together with us, I just don't see that in the cards yet. But I think that combination of Israel's sociocultural trajectory and just the weakening of the American empire globally could lead to a situation in which Gaza is annexed to Israel within the next 10, 20 years. I think Bibi's doing something very smart here, which is being very strong on the fact that clearly there is a bad situation in Gaza. We can't really so much trust that we can just return to October 6th and everything's going to be fine. And he's kind of laying down certain conditions that are kind of ambiguous in terms of how they're going to actually be accomplished, but imply pretty, pretty strongly that Israel's actually going to have to remain in Gaza for a while. So it does seem like that's the trajectory, even if it takes, you know, a decade, let's say, to actually play out. Um, and I also think Bibi's playing a very smart game with the Americans, which is, you know, he's pretty much making it clear that the relationship up until now is kind of being reevaluated a little bit. He's not being super aggressive about it, but he's definitely showing them pretty strongly that Israel is kind of in charge of its own decision making here and it's going to look out for its best interests, whether or not the Americans support it. 
And this is not the first time in Israel's history where we've taken that sort of posture towards America. There have been other times where we've, you know, started to, let's say, distance ourselves from these powers when it appeared to be that it was a choice between our own survival and their support. And those have actually been some of our most victorious times, most victorious wars. Um, The best outcomes have come from those periods of time. And so I think it's interesting to take a look back and see how our relationship with America previously has either benefited us or um, not. Well, I, I think it's definitely true that Netanyahu at this point has positioned himself politically, uh, domestically, as the only national leader who could stand up to the Americans and prevent the Palestinian Authority from taking over Gaza. and. By positioning himself this way, he's really tapping into something. He's really appealing to a large sector of Israeli society because Israeli society does not want the Palestinian Authority taking over Gaza and sees that the Americans are pressuring us. I'm not sure that the average Israeli who opposes the PA in Gaza and wants our prime minister to resist American pressure to allow the PA into Gaza, I'm not sure the average Israeli who takes those positions understands the extent to which we only left Gaza because of American pressure. I'm not sure that that's taken for granted by everyone in this country. I'm not sure everybody's familiar with the backstory there. And I also think, to be honest, I think the Biden administration is making a major mistake if their interests really are for Israel to withdraw from Gaza again when this is over. Because by publicly demanding that Israel lay out a plan for the day after, they're essentially creating the conditions for any suggestion Israel throws out there, other than just continued Israeli rule, um, to be delegitimized in the Palestinian street. Like, for example, there is in Palestinian civil society in Gaza many prominent organic leaders uh, specifically associated with large extended families, what you know, we can call clans, that are very important in Gaza and very important in Palestinian politics. And there could be you know, clans in Gaza who in theory could be players and forces that Israel could work with in a post-war Gaza. And if Washington demands that we lay out our plan now and if Israel were to come and say, well, you know, we want to work with these, you know, clans who seem to represent large sectors of Gazan society, that would only delegitimize those clans. Like right away, Hamas would use that to say, you see, those people are collaborators or those people are, you know, Israeli puppets or Israel is going to make them Israeli puppets. You can't trust them, right? Like that would only delegitimize those players. So I think just by demanding Israel throw out a clear um, vision for the day after, the Americans are creating a situation in which anything the Israelis suggest will be delegitimized on the Gazan street, which again only leaves us with continued Israeli rule. It also gives the opportunity for those plans to be delegitimized on the Israeli side of the street while we're still in the midst of this war if we actually don't like those plans that are being laid out because we're not done our military campaign yet and there's still a lot of room for Israelis to kind of take the streets and express their displeasure with whatever theoretical situation is going to be proposed if 
it appeared to be serving American interests more than Israeli interests. So yeah, on, on both sides of the coin, it's just kind of a bad move for them to be demanding that we lay out these plans. Um, I think they're doing it, the Biden administration is doing it to try to save its own image somehow. But I, I think Israel has started to play a different ball game with Washington than it has played in the past. Um, and I view that as a very good thing. That, we're, that we seem to have taken a different type of tone in terms of responding to America's demands of us in this moment. Right. I think what's also clear is that a major uh, misstep in demanding, in demanding Israel's leadership clearly lay out a plan for the day after is the assumption that this is some kind of war of choice. I think that when it comes to wars that are kind of like that, that are kind of like premeditated strikes aimed at changing the terrain or, or changing borders or changing the political situation in the region, then there's usually a clear strategy with a clear agenda and a clear vision for what comes after the war. But from the perspective of most Israelis, and I assume also our leadership, this is, this is a war of survival. Like, I think most Israelis are really experiencing this as a war of survival, not a war of choice. You know, in, in Hebrew, uh, we can speak about the difference between a milchemet rishut and a milchemet mitzvah, right? The milchemet rishut is kind of like an optional war in halacha, like Israel decides to go to war because it has some interest in going to war, whereas a milchemet mitzvah, an obligatory war, a holy war, a, a war that's a mitzvah, is a scenario where we're either conquering the land of Israel, which if we take Gaza, we are, uh, or defending the Jewish people from being attacked, which is, I think, how most Israelis are experiencing this. I think mo in the minds of most Israelis, we, we are fighting for our lives, we're fighting for our survival, we have Iranian proxies surrounding our country. We have pressure from the Americans who kind of pretend to be our friends but aren't really our friends. And I think that's become more and more clear to a lot of the Israeli street. And therefore, we feel this is like a war of no choice. We feel that this is a war that we have to fight regardless of whether or not we have a vision for the day after. This is a war we have to fight just because we have no choice but to fight it. And I think that's something that a lot of people misunderstand. I'm getting calls and messages from a lot of people I know in the diaspora. Uh, some of them are former students and, and some of them are, are just people I happen to know a few years and who I would consider friends and you know there's mutual respect who really see this as just like an act of one-sided Israeli aggression genocide uh, you know the genocide of Gaza the continuation of the Nakba and uh, I'm, I'm there are people who are really who really want me, you know, being somebody who, who they see as both a Jewish nationalist living in the West Bank, connected to the story of my people, but also sympathetic to the Palestinian story and uh, to Palestinian suffering. They, they are saying to me that, you know, you have a voice that's important and you got to call on Israel to stop the genocide of Gaza. Now, I, I'm not sure what power they think I have to really put a stop to any of this. And I don't want to get into an argument over whether or not this is a genocide. It, it feels like that's a really, really a semantic argument that's neither here nor there, only because if somebody sees this as a genocide, I'm not going to convince them otherwise. And if they don't, I'm not going to convince them that it is. You know, it's kind of like apartheid, right? If you, if you want to see the situation in the West Bank as apartheid, you will. If you, if you don't want to see it as apartheid, 
apartheid, you won't. And again, everybody's got their definitions. All these words, all, all these politicized words have enough definitions that they could be applied in, in so many different directions. But but I think I think what troubles me about a lot of these requests I'm getting to speak up against this war and to demand a ceasefire and all that is that I don't think the people who are asking this of me appreciate the extent to which Israel sees itself as being in a war of no choice, of really having no choice but to fight to destroy Hamas. And again, we've talked before on the show about how Hamas has, in my opinion, brilliantly positioned itself with all the resources at its disposal under a civilian population that Israel will have no choice but to cut through in order to dismantle Hamas. Like that just seems to be a winning strategy. It was a winning strategy until they crossed the line they crossed in Simchat Torah. On October 7th, they did things and shared videos of things that were so, so jarring and so traumatic for the majority of Israeli society that we really felt we had no choice but to remove this evil from the country, that we have to take them out. Now, that leads us to the third category of Milchemet Mitzvah. The third holy war in our Torah is the war to eradicate Amalek. And now there are a lot of voices, of course, who are saying, well, Hamas is Amalek, clearly. I actually don't appreciate this. Like, I personally find myself pushing back against this. I don't think that every enemy we fight is Amalek. Uh, I think we can fight plenty of enemies throughout our history that are not Amalek. I think Amalek means something very specific, and, and I feel like we water down the definition of Amalek when we apply it to every enemy we fight. No, you don't agree with me? Not really if we're genuinely in a war. And like we remember the strength in which we're supposed to fight Amalek, even if we're misidentifying an enemy as Amalek, I think it's not the least healthy thing for us to do to like relate to whatever enemy we're currently at war with, with the passion that we should relate to Amalek with. They're, they're not Amalek, but to relate to them with the same type of strength that we would relate to Amalek in terms of our desire to fight them is a healthy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of people asking you to comment on this war, um, mainly because they're upset that you're not condemning genocide, um, I'm not going to get into that any further than just say that that's been an accusation that's been leveled against us for a while at this point. It's kind of tired, kind of old. It seems like a regurgitation of an accusation against us that's been like an old one. And now we just have a higher death toll. So they think they have more proof for that accusation. I have very little patience for it. And I also have very little patience for divorcing this war against Hamas from the broader regional context of the enemies that we're fighting just in the Middle East in general. Israel is at war for our survival. And I think many Israelis have even started to feel that we're being held back from fighting other enemies that we have to fight, namely on the northern border against Hezbollah, which has had a significant flare up in the past little while. I think many Israelis do have the desire to fight these enemies and fight them hard because we're sick and tired of living under this constant threat and fear of war. Um, And it's very easy to kind of be sideline quarterbacks and, you know, just comment their opinions sitting in the diaspora on what Israeli Jews should or shouldn't do to preserve their safety. But at the end of the day, that that holds very little water to actual Israelis who are the ones who have to deal with the consequences of having these enemies at our borders. Um, These are wars that we are undertaking for the safety and the future of our children and our country and our people and our land. And, you know, it's 
I have found it increasingly difficult to listen to these voices abroad telling us how we should and should not conduct ourselves in these wars um, because the consequences that it has for them is different than the consequences that it has for us. Yeah, I would also add that I feel a lot of these Jews, you know, a lot of these diaspora Jews are actually very disconnected from the story of our people. And, you know, some of them went to modern Orthodox Jewish high schools, discovered the Palestinian story in university, and have kind of rejected the shallow Zionist narrative they were raised with. And that makes sense, just given the poor state of Jewish education today. It's atrocious. It's a failure. It's obviously very sad. And these guys, I would consider some of these people to be the best and brightest young Jews. I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of the Hasbara world and a lot of Jewish education more broadly is really geared towards the lowest common denominator as opposed to really focusing on the best and brightest young minds that the Jewish community has. And it's them specifically, those who really have the power to influence the world, who are turned off by what they consider to be a very shallow pro-Israel narrative, the APAC narrative, the Stand With Us narrative, the Hasbara industry narrative. And I think that a lot of them who are now, you know, floating around pro-Palestinian spaces and we can say either, you know, tokenized Jews or whatever terminology we want to use, they really don't know the Jewish story, but they think they do. I think that's really the tragedy here. Because they went through 12 years of very expensive Jewish education, they assume they know the story of the Jewish people and have decided, okay, this is wrong, or this doesn't measure up to the compelling story they're hearing from Palestinians. And I agree that the Palestinian story is a real one and a compelling one, but unfortunately, a lot of these diaspora Jews with their 30-something thousand dollar a year Jewish education were robbed of receiving the real Jewish story. And the way I would judge it, to be honest, the, the way I would like measure the extent to which a Jew is connected to the story of his people really is how much that Jew feels connected to the aspirations that we express uh, in the Amidah, in the Shemona Esrei. Like, to what extent do you feel that, like, these are the things missing from the world? To what extent does it keep you awake at night that these things aren't our reality? I think the, because what the Amidah really is, what the Shemona Esra really is, is an expression of our collective soul, the will of our collective soul. And any Jew who just relates to that tefillah experience as this, like, chore I have to do, I got to say these words, and then I'm out of here. And oh yeah, what do the Jews want? Oh, the Jews want like security. The Jews want safety. The Jews want peace. The Jews want economic prosperity. Uh, the Jews want the Gentiles to like us. Like that's the Jewish story, right? The Jewish story is the thing you just mumbled and ran out of synagogue because you didn't take it seriously. Like that's the real core set of aspirations that our people have carried with us for thousands of years. And if you're not connected to that, you're not really connected to the Jewish story. I think that's somewhat fair. I also do think there's an element of this where people did get the Jewish story from whatever Jewish education they had, and it's just not socially cool to try to defend that. They don't have the right tools, and they're seeing all this uh, anti-Israel activism and facing a lot of pressure to basically condemn it. And, you know, Zionism and 
the state of Israel does have a lot of flaws and for them it's just you know not socially worthwhile to stake their identity or their positions on something that they can't fully defend well and so they're kind of just taking a more neutral like ceasefire now kind of position. Do you think ceasefire now is a neutral position or is it a position that is essentially calling on Israel to lose? Personally I experience it as a position calling on Israel to lose. A hundred percent. But I don't think they think that when they're calling for that position, meaning I'm not superimposing the way I feel about it onto what their motives are when they call for it. I think they think it's a neutral position. I just think, again, based on their position as a Jew in the diaspora, they're um, like they're living in a movie a little bit in terms of the reality about like what Israeli Jews are actually experiencing and like how we actually have to fight this war. A ceasefire now is essentially asking us to lay down our weapons and be like, all right, Hamas like attacked us. We just, we got to let them get away with it. That's, that's what they're asking us to do. Right. And they're claiming that even if we eradicate Hamas, you know, something worse will grow out from underneath Hamas, that there's no way we can expect this conflict to end by using military force. And I think I think that's a little bit of a misnomer because the truth is if you have an enemy with a powerful ideology and with infrastructure and with guns and with tens of thousands of fighters, yeah, eradicating that does make us safer. And if there's an ideology of hatred that's going to grow out from whatever we have to do to destroy Hamas, that's something we're going to have to deal with. Like, like I do believe that Hamas exists and is as powerful as they are because Palestinians do experience oppression from Israel. And I think that if we really want to destroy the ideology of Hamas and the ideology of Palestinian opposition to Jewish self-determination, then we're going to have to behave differently towards them. We're going to have to actually stop oppressing them. But when we're actually attacked by a force that has an armed wing and money and a mini-state and a network of tunnels under their civilian population, we have no choice but to take them out. We can't let them exist. Yeah, I mean, one war aim at a time. Meaning, yeah, if the goal is ultimately to get rid of that ideology, first we got to get rid of the guys who are actively like the military front of that ideology. Then we can talk about how we're actually going to fix the problems that exist underneath it. But we can't even get to that phase unless that part is completely destroyed and like gone and not a factor on the table anymore. So it's really completely unreal realistic to like expect Israel to just call for a ceasefire especially at this stage especially after what was done to us I know it is uncomfortable and sad honestly sad I follow Palestinian media I see the videos of what's going on over there it, it is hard to watch it's hard to see play out and it's extra hard when all of your non-Jewish friends are coming at you and being like why don't you condemn this like don't you see this suffering Jews not non-Jews Jews are asking me I understand Jews are asking you, but non-Jews are asking them, meaning like part of the reason that they're on such a strong train of, you know, why aren't you condemning this is because they're hearing that from their social groups and from their peers. Um, and so that, you know, seeps into a person once you hear it enough. To be fair, I think they're hearing it from the voices inside their head saying this is wrong. 
I'm a Jew, I need to stand against this. And, and from what they're, again, it's the echo chamber they're in on social media, it's, it's what they're seeing. I don't think it's the whole story. I think obviously, you know, I'm I'm somebody who doesn't exist in an echo chamber on social media. My feed is full of a variety of opinions and positions on different issues, especially when it comes to this conflict. But I think that, you know, when you're getting one message over and over and over again from every news source you trust, from all the comrades you organize with, from all your social media friends, then it becomes very easy to be like, yeah, this is what's happening and we have to stop this. Uh, and again, that's not to say that there isn't a catastrophic death toll in Gaza right now, that it's, it's not devastating for the people of Gaza. It is. And I wish we had another choice, but... I don't think we have a choice but to remove Hamas, and Hamas is under that civilian population. And yeah, for roughly 16 years, Israel told ourselves we can't do anything about this. Like our leaders refrained from taking out Hamas, and we bought into the illusion that they're going to transform themselves into responsible state actors because we just didn't want to kill the amount of Gazan Palestinians we're going to have to kill to remove them. But on Simchat Torah, on October 7th, they crossed that line and left us with absolutely no choice. Yeah, and it is hard to watch these things play out on social media. I also don't exist in an echo chamber online, and I see both sides of this conflict playing out. But I, like I said before, it's very easy to sit there in the diaspora, whether you're a Palestinian or you're a Jew, and you know lay out your whole commentary on the whole situation. It's very different when you actually live it, when it's your reality and the choices that the parties are making have genuine real world consequences for you and your family and your friends and the whole country's safety. So here's what I'd like to see for the day after. Mm -hmm. I Maybe this is wishful thinking on my part, but I do believe there are enough Palestinians. It's certainly clear that there are many, uh, that, that there's a, a large percentage of Palestinian society in Gaza opposed to Hamas, yet we shouldn't confuse ourselves into thinking that those people are pro-Israel. In fact, popularity for Hamas rises when they attack Israel, and there is overwhelming support for what Hamas did on October 7th, uh, precisely because the majority of Palestinians really see that as punching up. They feel oppressed by Israel on a daily basis and drawing Israeli blood, killing Israelis, um, humiliating Israel, dishonoring Israel is going to raise the popularity of any Palestinian faction. Now, that being said, the scenario I'd like to see after this war is Israel remain in Gaza. Um, we have to. I mean, there's no way that we can secure the south of our country without Gaza being under full Israeli control. I think there's a way to cooperate with those Palestinian leaders, specifically the clans, who might not like us right now, but maybe we can change our behavior enough that they'll warm to us a little bit. I think that we also have to, uh, when we think about what it looks like, you know, these three goals, you know, dismantling Hamas, demilitarizing Gaza, and uh, de-radicalizing the Palestinian population of Gaza. I, I think those things mean something specific. I think Hamas obviously has to be removed, but we also have to think about their ideological power. And this is where, like, we get to de-radicalization, right? Yeah. A lot of their ideological power is in the mosques, right? A lot of the imams of Gaza are preaching an understanding of Islam that is not only radicalizing, but radicalizing against the people of Israel. 
So when it comes to ideological battles, I'm honestly a big fan of soft fighting. Meaning, I don't want to tell them that the radicalization is wrong. I want to tell them the radicalization is misdirected. And I want to change the role Israel plays in their story. And maybe the way to do that, and, and I'm thinking out loud here, is to send some of our chachamim, um, and, and our real chachamim, and our, you know, those who are really not only giants of Torah, but fully living our national story, you know, not just Haredi when it comes to the personal mitzvot, but Haredi when it comes to the national mitzvot. I'm talking about giant rabbis like uh, Rav uh, Dov Lior and Rav uh, Tau, Rav uh, Tzvi Yisrael Tau, and Rav Shmuel Eliyahu, and uh, sending these Chachamim to Gaza to dialogue with their imams and uh, find common ground. And to actually create, uh, I, I'm not going to say peace because I think that's a little bit ambitious, but to create some kind of mutual understanding based on shared values and based on a shared vision for how we can build the society together. Again, the only way we're going to exist together in a single state here, which is the goal, in my opinion, is if the two populations can really become allies and to see ourselves responsible for protecting the other. And I think the only way to do that is to change the roles we play in each other's narratives. And I think uh, we're, we're going to have to expose the Palestinians of Gaza post-Hamas to a different kind of Israel. An Israel that's A, much less oppressive, and B, much less Western in character, much less something that they see you know, a need to fight on theological grounds. Listen, that's that's an interesting idea. I'm curious whether or not that would even be on the radar at the current political moment in Israeli society. I think it'd be an avenue worth trying. But I think, honestly, it's kind of ridiculous to even have this conversation about the day after. I don't think we started this conversation. I think it was America that started this conversation about, you know, day after, what what's it going to look like? But we haven't even made it through this war. We don't know what Gaza's going to look like the day after. And so everyone's just throwing out these scenarios and these, you know, aims and whatever it is based on a situation that we don't even know like what it's going to look like. So it's very hard to speculate. Uh, but you know, should the conditions be right, I think that'd be a great avenue to go down. All right. Uh, this seems like a great place for us to end. As always, I'd like to urge our listeners to become patrons by going to patreon.com slash vision movement. In addition to supporting our show, you'll have access to a lot of bonus content that's actually really great and a little intense and something we don't share with everybody because uh, we just don't want to scare anyone. So if you're interested in that bonus content, you go to patreon.com slash vision movement and join at any level you feel comfortable. And uh, that's really a great way to not only gain that extra bonus content for yourself uh, and a few other perks that you can learn about by looking at the different tier options, but also a way to support us and help us keep this show going because, as you know, this program is completely listener-funded. And, of course, if you want to check out the show notes to this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 111. And with that, I'd really like to wish our listeners a Hanukkah Sameach. Hanukkah Sameach, everyone. Ma'oz <laughs> Yeshua yeah, sure.
Thank you. 
Salmon, I came, Lanu, Roy, she 